I'd like to give you just a brief update of who we are as a family, uh, where we've come from, where we're going, and then kind of segue into the ministry that God has been using the likes of you to support in Namibia, and then move into something that I hope you will treasure for the rest of your life. My wife and I both grew up in missionary homes. My wife was in Brazil as she grew up. I was in Angola as I grew up. We met in South Carolina. We met uh, in Columbia at CIU. And although my wife is well-educated and very smart, she never got a brain until she married me. <laughs> and that was in 1991. And uh, we married right after we graduated. I graduated from the seminary, and she graduated from the Bible college. And in two years, we were in Namibia. And during that time, you as a church began supporting us. And I thank you for that. In Namibia, we served primarily in leadership training, working with um, young pastors, people who were training for the ministry. We eventually moved into a war zone uh, in Angola, where we worked for almost 11 years. And during that time period that we were in Africa, we were blessed with uh, two daughters who were born to us, uh, Charity and Carissa, love and grace. And uh, that's how we came to the Lord. And uh, they are now grown and flown the coop. My oldest daughter, Charity, is in Phoenix, Arizona. She's studying to be a vet. And... Uh, my youngest daughter is in a master's program in Philly uh, in social work, and by God's grace, they both love and follow the Lord. We have been working uh, now since 2005 in the country of Namibia, and uh, Namibia is a really big place. Uh, it's hot, it's dry, there's no water, but there's not very many people. There's only about three million people in Namibia. And uh, Namibia has a very convoluted history of all sorts of nasty things like war and genocide and racism and um, apartheid and um, mines and all sorts of things. And it is a fractured people, not only linguistically, but also uh, religiously and also culturally. And there's five mainly uh, five different groups, and they all speak their own languages, and they all kind of live in their own little corners. And yet, Namibia has this amazing distinction of being the most, believe it or not, Christianized country in the world. It has the highest percentage of people that would say, yes, I'm Christian. And yet, it's very shallow, and it's very much influenced by the prosperity gospel, and by all things that substitute and masquerade like Christianity. But there is a love of the Bible. There is a love for things of God. And so our mission, SIM, invited us many years ago to try to discern nationally where God is working, what is he doing, and who is he doing it with. And there were several ideas of how to go about that and what eventually came to fruition what is what is called the pastor's book set. Now, it doesn't take rocket science to understand that, 
but uh, I haven't been in your pastor's office yet. I was in Drew's office a couple times, but I can only imagine what I would see when I would walk in there. He probably has lots of books, and if he doesn't have lots of books on the shelves, I can tell you they're on his computer. And we can access things instantly, and we reference, and we research, and we read. How good would your pastor's messages be if the only thing he had was a Bible in a language not his own, let's say Romanian? And every Sunday, he had to preach before you from his Romanian Bible and make it make sense for you. How fresh would his messages be? How insightful would he be on the Word of God if that was the only resource he had? Well, the majority of pastors in Namibia, that's what they face. Sometimes two and three languages removed from what they actually serve in with no resource except for the Bible in a language that may, they may not actually use in worship. And so the plan was, and this is something SIM has done in many places, is the pastor's book set to supply tools for pastors. Now the first phase was 10 books, and it was for 1,400 pastors, and it was study Bibles and reference books and commentaries and things like that. And we could get all into that, but let me just tell you one little story that gives you an idea of what it meant for one man. He lives in the northern part of Namibia in a place called uh, Oshakati, and he climbed into a taxi one day, and by taxi, it's this kind of little 15-passenger van that only probably ought to take eight people, but it takes 16. And he jumped in that taxi, and he drove for nine hours to the closest Christian bookstore. How many books would you own if the closest Christian bookstore was in, you know, what's a city eight hours from here? Jacksonville, Florida or whatever? Miami, Florida? How many books would you own if that was the closest place you could buy a book? Well, he went there with one intent only to buy an NIV study Bible. And he walks in and the price of the NIV study Bible was well over, no exaggeration, 100 U.S. dollars. He didn't have that. Now, it doesn't cost you 100 U.S. dollars to own a, a study Bible, but that's what it was going to cost him. And he went back dejected to where he was staying, and the next day, climbed back into the taxi, now and I was drive all the way back home again without his Bible. He was sitting there at his home, sad, and just so happened a friend comes by and says, oh, he says, by the way, there's this thing called the pastor's book set. It's coming to town in two weeks. Why don't you sign up? So he signed up, and wouldn't you know, the very first book that was given to him was the 1984 edition of the NIV Study Bible. Tears were streaming down his face, and he came up to me and he says, now, you have to understand, there's, at that conference, there was well over 300 pastors. I don't know these people. I don't know if they preach the gospel. If they're way off in left field, I don't know anything about them. So you be very careful who you let up front. And he said, can I say something? And you, never, you learn never to say no. Uh, it's always maybe, you know. And so um, he said, I, I just want to say thank you. And, and I said, well, you know, if I let everybody do that, we'd be here for another three days. Can you keep it really short? And he said, yes. And he told the story. And then he did something nobody expected. He ran down the aisle between these 300 pastors, and he went to the back, and there was an empty box where books had been 
held, and he brought that box, and he set it right up front here with the, on a chair, and he said, now we're going to thank them the African way. And he begins singing and dancing, and before we know, there's 300 people standing up, marching in unison, dancing, and singing to their heart's content. And then he picks out a bunch of cash in his pocket, and he throws it into the box. Well, it took 20 minutes before everybody made it to that box. And then he turns to me and he says, Calvin, this is for you and your team. Go buy ice cream or whatever it is that you guys need. This is just a small thank you from us. Have you ever given a person a gift because they gave you a Bible? Is it that valuable to you? Or do you have dozens of them on your shelf that you don't even open? Do you come to Saturday night and you grab your Bible and you go, so it's ready for Sunday? Or is it something that you yearn to have that brings tears to your eyes? So books are a valuable help to these pastors. And then the second phase was Issues in ministry. Now, how would we arrive at issues in ministry? Well, at the first round of conferences, we asked them a question. What issues do you face in ministry? And we got this long list, and we created a book list of 28 books, and that was the second set of books for 1,400 pastors. Now, it might surprise you what sort of issues were in that list. Things like... Evangelism, well, that's not such a surprise. Uh, counseling, Christian family, uh, money, those are not such a surprise. But the one that was kind of a surprise to me was homosexuality. Okay, so we got some books on homosexuality. And as we talked as a, a committee, you know, how are we going to address this issue? The desire was we need to make a big deal about the gospel. You know, we have all these churches, and they all disagree, and they all have different traditions and different heritages, and they all have soapboxes they like to stand on. What is the one thing that we can all agree on? And if it's a hill that we have to die on, so be it. Let's live and die for the gospel. And so the whole second round of conferences for these 1,400 pastors in 10 different cities was, first of all, what is the gospel? And we went from creation all the way to the ascension and talked about the Bible's message of the gospel. What is it? And then we took two issues, the primary issues that Namibia faces, racism and homosexuality. And we used these two things and asked ourselves the question, what does the Bible say about these and how is the gospel going to equip us to respond to these issues? Now, I don't know about you, but I got really convicted because Jesus was called the friend of sinners. Now, you know, I don't know what you think about racism. I don't think I know necessarily what you think about homosexuality. But if you classify those as sin, Jesus was the friend of sinners. Do any homosexual people call you a friend? Does anybody that sees with racism call you a friend? Jesus was that kind of friend. So where do you fit? 
you're supposed to be like Jesus. So am I. In a conference down south, which has been most affected by the millions of dollars that have been pumped into Namibia by the homosexual agenda around the globe, and the whole reason is they want to change Namibia because Namibia is actually this kind of pearl in Africa. Everything works, you know, cell phones, it's nice to visit there. You can rent cars, there's nice restaurants. It's just really nice. And so there's been all kinds of money dumped into Namibia trying to transition kind of the traditional African culture towards something more acceptable for the homosexual agenda. Soften them up. And so the part of the country that has been most vested in this is the south. And it's the, the north is black, the, the middle is kind of every color in the book, and the south is colored. Mixed race. They speak Afrikaans. And in one of these conferences, there were 67 pastors there, and I asked them a question. I said, would you raise your hand if you can say that there is an issue of homosexuality in your immediate family? 67 hands went into the air. Now, if I got 67 pastors together in South Carolina, and I said, is homosexuality in your immediate family? I don't think 67 hands would go up. But that's what happened in southern Namibia. And so the gospel has something to say about how we respond to what confronts us. Well, where's the pastor's book set going now? We're almost finished that phase, the second phase of 28 books on issues in ministry. And the next one, to me, is, is, is just all part of God's heart. And we sang about it over and over again. And whoever chose the worship songs, man, you couldn't have chosen things better. So let me go back to God's intent for the plan of redemption. Why in the heck did God do what he did? Why is he still doing what he always did? What's his end game? The very first words God ever said was quite simply, let there be light. Now, right away, I've been there, seen that, and you're thinking, natural light. Well, I'd like to plant a seed in your mind. It's not just natural light. That was God's plan for the rest of history. Is it any wonder that Jesus comes on the scene? And what does he say about himself? I am the? And what does it say at the end of time? There's no more need for what? For light. Well, God dwells in light. God dwells in glory. In God's intent for all creation is His glory. And, and the trees clap their hands for His glory. And the birds sing for His glory. We're the only ones that get it screwed up. But God's desire is to glorify himself. That is his aim. What is his method? How is he going to get there? Well, I applaud you as a church. I see flags hanging everywhere. I get this little book that shows me all the missionaries that you support. My family have benefited from your prayers and for, from your giving. 
because you're dedicated to missions. That is God's method to bring him glory. God's intent is that every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. How is he going to do that? What's the method? How does he bring people to Jesus? Missions. So whatever you do in life, whether you fly a plane or you swing a hammer, your mission is the same. It's to bring people to Jesus. Now, right now, as we speak, the present statistic for Namibia, and you know, statistics, do they tell us the truth? Do they not? But somewhere in the ballpark. 57% of the Namibian population is under 24. Okay? Under 24. Now, the next phase of the pastor's book said is quite simply this. We go to all these 10 cities, to those 1,400 pastors, we invite them back again, and we say, what's God's plan? What's he after? Well, he's after his glory. And what's his method? How is he going to achieve his glory? How is he going to bring glory to his son? How is he going to bring everything under the feet of his son Jesus? That's missions. And then to ask them the question. Well, what's our mission field here in Namibia as a church, as the body of Christ? What do we do? And then to explain to them that statistic. If we're going to reach Namibia for Jesus, we have to reach who? The next generation. And it's 57% of them are under 24. Are we losing them? So then after we kind of say that to all the bigwigs, then we say, please give us your youth workers. Let them spend two or three days with us and we're going to help equip them with tools, with resources to reach the next generation. Why? To God be the glory. Great things he has done. And great things he's going to do. I have been significantly challenged with this word glory. We use it all the time. We sang it. Did anybody count how many times the word glory appeared in our singing? But did you ever stop to ask yourself the question, what is glory? Look it up in Webster's. See if you can find an answer. The word appears all through the Bible. But what is God's glory? If that's what he's after, we ought to know what it is, right? If we sing about it every blessed Sunday, we ought to know something about the glory of God. What is it? You know, sometimes it seems like it's, it's smoke. It says the temple was filled with his glory and they all had to walk out. It was so thick. So is glory smoke? It says the glory descended upon the mountain. And it was flaming and burning and lightning and thundering. So is that what glory is? 
And how is it that we promote it? Okay, if you knew you had 15 hours to die, and you knew it was curtains for you, 15 hours, finish, kaput. Pick the lid on the coffin, throw the clod on top, and call it quits. What would you do for the next 15 hours? What would you say? To whom would you say it? Would you make it count? Or would you go to Baskin and Robbins? I think most of us, if we knew we had 15 hours, we would make it count. And we would carefully plan out that 15 hours to say exactly our intent. If, if there was anything that people were going to remember about us and what we stood for, they were going to remember those 15 hours. We we're going to make sure of that. Well, Jesus' last message was approximately the last 15 hours of his life. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. And the more I look at this, the more I study this, the more I just read it and try to take it in, it seems so clear as the mission of the church. And we don't like it, quite frankly. What it says to us, we know. There's nothing new. I, I can't imagine that anybody sitting here, I'm going to tell you anything new today. You're versed in the things of Scripture. You, some of you have sat here for longer than I've been alive. It starts in John chapter 13. And the disciples, kind of the preview to it, they were arguing about who was the greatest. You know, we call ourselves the me generation. Selfie generation. It's all about me. And Jesus comes on the scene. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't lambast them. He doesn't give them a piece of his mind. I mean, he had a right to. God of the universe, king of kings. He just takes his clothes off. And he puts a towel around his waist. He gets a basin of water. And he washes their feet. How many feet have you washed? How many people have you intentionally bent way out of your comfort zone to just humble yourself? I don't like that. You know, give me a hill to climb, a country to conquer, but not a basin of water. Come on. And here he is, the king of kings, knelt down. He washes their feet. And immediately a discussion. No, you're not going to wash my feet. No, you don't understand what I'm doing. One day you may. But if I don't wash you, you're not part of me. Well, I think everybody sitting here wants to be part of Jesus. And so Peter succumbed and he let his feet get washed. And then Jesus finished and he says, you know what I've showed you is something you need to do. And he begins now talking about his plan for redemption. And it starts with this incredibly powerful picture of humility to a group of people who were all about themselves. And he finishes that, and then he says, oh, um, and they could see that he was visibly weary, tired, cast down. He said, 
my heart is heavy because one of you is going to betray me. Now, you're all good Christians. There isn't one of us who hasn't betrayed Jesus. Sometimes by what we do and sometimes by what we don't do. But we've been there. We have betrayed him. And so, Peter, trying to conjure up additional vigor, says, no, 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 I'll go anywhere with you. And Jesus, at the end of 13, says, the cock's going to crow, Peter, three times, and you are going to deny me. Now, can you imagine the other disciples saying, you know, Peter's the head of the pack here. He, you know, he's the, you know, he's the big mouth. He's the guy up front. We all follow him. And if he's going to fail, he's going to deny Jesus. What about the likes of us? And so they're all downhearted. They're all discouraged. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, where I'm going, you can't come. Okay? Now, that's the thing they wanted most. That's what they had lived for for all of these years. And then... They were depressed. So everybody's depressed. And Jesus picks them out of the doldrums in chapter 14. And he identifies several things that are the bulwark on which you need to stand as a Christian. First of all, he says, oh, by the way, don't be discouraged. Don't be dismayed. Don't be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am there, you may be also. They wanted to know the way. Well, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And he identifies not only the hope they need to have in heaven as a bulwark on which to stand. He talks about prayer, and he says, whatever you ask in my name, I will give you. He talks about sending them a comforter who's going to remind them of the things that Jesus taught them. Talks about this comforter who's going to lead them into truth, who's going to show them things to come. And then they leave the upper room. Okay, so they've washed their feet, they've had the Passover meal. Judas has walked out to betray him, and now they leave the upper room. Now, I don't know where they went, but. The week of Passover, and Passover is always chosen when the moon is full. So they're walking out to full moonlight. Okay? They're walking through the cobblestones of Jerusalem. I'm sure Jesus lowered his voice as he talked because he didn't want to wake up the neighborhood. And he comes to chapter 15. I don't know where they were, but I have a guess. Let me take you back. Herod's temple had these huge gates. And on those gates, they had carved a grapevine because it's a picture of Israel in the Old Testament. And I don't know if at this time or not, but sometime later, and it may have already been installed by now, on the face of the temple, Herod's temple, there was a gold grapevine on that wall. Maybe in the moonlight, as that gold shimmered, Maybe that's when Jesus, taking that analogy of Israel in the Old Testament, says, oh, by the way, let me talk to you about the vine. 
And he begins to unwrap for them this incredibly powerful truth that we have at our fingertips and so seldom use. And that is abiding in Christ. We could spend a week talking about what it means to abide in Christ. But let me give you a little illustration. Where did I put it? I left it. You know what I'm talking about. I had my cell phone. Do you all have cell phones? Now, that little thing is a fruitful little thing. It goes on the internet. It makes calls. It receives texts. It tells you where to drive. I mean, it's got all kinds of bells and whistles. But with all of that power, with all of that technology, with all that ability, that thing is useless unless every night it abides in the charger. If you don't connect that thing to be charged, it is totally useless. It can do nothing unless it has abided in the charger. And then it's very fruitful. Well, well you're this bundle of opportunity that, the, that God just wants to use. You have this circle of friends, these people that know you. You can be impactful like nobody else. You're a unique individual made in the image of God, put on this earth for a purpose. But unless you abide in Jesus, the charger, you're useless. Jesus said you can do nothing unless you abide. There's no fruit in your life unless you abide. Now, you know, we don't like commandments. We think they're restrictive. They deprive us of our pleasure. But Jesus says, if you love me, you will do what I command you. Do you really love Jesus? You say you do. You sit in a church that says we do. But do you really love him? Is eternity important to you? Do you want to make a difference with your life? It's only one way. Abide in the charger. Your life is this budding potential for God. You may not think that. But, but God don't make no junk. You have all kinds of smartphone in you. But it has to abide in the charger. It has to have the power to work. And it can't come from you. That phone has no ability to plug itself in. It has to be plugged in. And then it gets the charge. Well, this whole chapter, and the one before it, and the one before it, and the one that follows it, and the one that follows it is is encased in a couple of words. And I wish we had more time, but we're coming to the end here. So we're going to jump really quickly. Chapter 16 has all to do with that comforter who's coming. And Jesus describes for them in 14 and part of 15 and 16 the ministry of the Spirit who's going to comfort them. But in the middle of 15, 
he says something that brings us all back to what we know is most important. My father, Jesus said, is glorified by this. That's our purpose. That's God's intent for all of eternity. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Is there proof in your life that you're a disciple of Jesus? If you haven't been abiding in the charger, then you have no fruit. You're a dead cell phone. You're a good for nothing. But when that cell phone abides in the charger, when you abide in Christ, now you can produce fruit. And when you read through this chapter, it starts with, God wants us to produce fruit, and then it goes, not just fruit, but more fruit. And not just more fruit, but later he says, much fruit. So where are you in the fruit spectrum? Are you just fruit? Are you more fruit? Or has your life come to much fruit? So then we have this absolutely amazing thing. I mean, here it is. Jesus starts with this picture of humility. And he says, you have to love me. The world will know that you are my disciples. John 13, 35. If you love me. Well, where does it start? It starts with humility. You can never love as you should unless you start with humility. And if you don't have humility and you don't love, you don't abide, you're never going to arrive to Jesus' answer to his prayer in John 17. Now, I hope this makes you excited. Every once in a while in the Bible, we have these little tidbits, these little conversations, and they're all through Scripture where the windows of heaven kind of open and we get to listen in on a conversation of the Trinity. And God is talking to God. Well, the longest passage in the whole Bible of God talking to himself is John 17. And Jesus is talking to the Father. And it is so pregnant with beautiful things. But we're only going to look at one. It says this, verse 22. The glory which you have given me. Now, that's what God is all about. It's his plan for eternity. Jesus says, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. Did you ever know that? Did you know? This is amazing. God's glory, whatever that is, dwells in you. God don't make no junk. God's glory. Jesus says, what I've received, I've given my glory. He says, why? He gives us a reason. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one. My dear people, if you don't start with humility, if you don't love, if you're not charged with Jesus, you can never be unified. Oh, you can be unified 
if you eliminate all the important things, and that's what happens in so many churches, we water down the gospel, we water down the doctrine, until there's nothing to be unified except being unified. That's not what God is talking about here. It's not a unification by eliminating all the truth. No. And then Jesus says, I in them. Talk about abiding. And you in me. Talk about abiding. That they may be perfected in unity. You call yourselves harmony. Is there harmony? There will be no harmony in this church, unless you begin with humility, unless it's followed by love, unless you abide in Jesus, and then you will be a unity. And all the world around you will know that you are God's disciple. That's the message we'd like to communicate to Namibia. I hope you abide in the charger because you're not going to produce fruit unless you do. And there's nothing that glorifies God more than when you produce fruit. Oh, to produce more fruit. There isn't anybody sitting here who doesn't want their life to count. You want your life to count. What greater thing for it to count for than eternity? than to bring God glory, the very purpose of all redemption, of all history. There isn't anything higher you can aspire to than to glorify the perfect God. Make your life count. Abide. Be humble. Love. Prove to be his disciple. Produce much fruit. And the world will know that you are Jesus' disciple. Let's pray. Father, it is to you we bow. Our knee bends to you. We want to be filled. We want to be fruitful. And we want to be faithful. And Lord, bless these dear people. Increase their ability to reach higher ground for you. May they stand and hear those words when one day they will enter heaven. And may they hear those words, come, good and faithful servant. Thank you, Lord, for their much faithfulness, for all that they have accomplished for the kingdom of God. Thank you, Lord, for their giving, for their generosity, for their time, their talent, their treasure. And I pray, Father, that it would all be a sacrifice of praise to you. Be with us now as we sing and bring the service to a close. In Jesus' name.